All right, well, we are continuing in this message series called The Wisdom of Kings. It should really be The Wisdom and Foolishness of Kings. And we are, uh, we've spent uh, some weeks, we looked at King Saul, we looked at David, we looked at Solomon, and today we're going to look at a uh, really a pair of kings, and I'm going to try to help you distinguish uh, between them as we talk about paying the price of worship, paying the price of worship. So if you were here uh, last week, you'll recall we talked about King Solomon. Solomon had inherited the kingdom from his father David. Solomon was uh, the son of Bathsheba, uh, the woman with whom David had had an adulterous affair, and then this was the second son of that uh, relationship. And uh, Solomon prospered greatly, wealthiest king uh, of you know ever, uh, wisest king ever, and 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 really enjoyed a, a season, a period of peace uh, in the nation, roughly forty years, and and really built the built up the nation. It was prosperous, it was peaceful, it was uh, all things were going well, except for the fact that Solomon abandoned the ways of God, and he. Uh, he married prolifically hundreds of wives, hundreds more uh, sort of wives, concubines, they call them. Uh, and so he was surrounded himself in part for political allegiances, but in part because I just think the guy had issues. I don't know. He's crazy. And um, I'm satisfied with one. <laughs> it's also all I can handle, but <laughs> I'm going to tell you that, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if she goes to the grief share seminar about losing a spouse next week, let me know. So, um, now I'm distracted. You know, it's bad. You know, you know, you have ADD when you distract yourself. That's, that's really bad. So Solomon, um, really strayed from the Lord because he married all these foreign women who, and he's like, yeah, you can worship your God. Yeah, you can worship yours. Yeah, sure. I'll build you a temple for this and I'll build you a high place for that. And God said, that's it. That's enough. I'm going to take away the kingdom from Solomon and I'm going to give it to someone else who will be faithful because God saw that an effective leader like Solomon not only leads himself away from God, but leads others astray. And God says, that is not good. That is not going to happen. But I will maintain one tribe, one province for the sake of David, and that would be the kingdom of Judah. And actually, it turns out uh, Benjamin is sort of attached to Judah as well. But that was what God promised, that he'd maintain the one southern kingdom. And so in today's episode, the kingdom of Israel splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And uh, we're going to see how that happens. Now, we're going to have two names that are going to confuse you. One's Jeroboam and one's Rehoboam. Okay? Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And he's following on. And Jeroboam is the other guy. And if you're, if you're thinking, man, A, I doesn't really, I don't really care about these names. Well, let me help you figure these out. Think about it in descending alphabetical order. J comes before R. Northern kingdom comes before southern kingdom. Okay, so go down the alphabet, A, B, C, D, J, Jeroboam, to R, Rehoboam in the south. If that helps you distinguish between the two, a little mnemonic uh, device for you. Now, here's what happened. Rehoboam is given the whole kingdom. And the people come to him and they say, 
uh, Rehoboam, listen, uh, now that you're the king, uh, we have a request to make of you. You see, your dad was really tough. I mean, he was, he was great and all, but he was really hard on us. And if you would just consider lightening the load, we'd really appreciate it. And Solomon says to this delegation, well, let me think about that. Give me three days. And so he, he goes to the, to the senior advisors, Solomon's advisors. He says, hey, this is what the people are asking for. What do you think? And the senior advisors say, listen, listen to the people. If you'll lighten their load, if you'll go easier on them, not so much forced labor and not so much tax, because it was forced labor and it was taxation that was killing them. And they said, you lighten the load, they will be your loyal subjects for your whole life. Solomon says, I could do that. Rehoboam, thank you, uh, says, I could do that. And then he turns to his, his peers, his younger advisors, the palace brats that he grew up with. What do you guys think? These people are wanting me to lighten the load and they said my dad was too harsh on them. And they're like, oh, no, no, this is the time to double down. You let them know in no uncertain terms that if they think your dad was tough, they ain't seen nothing yet. And so that's what he does. He goes to the people and says, ha, huh, you think my dad was tough? My thumb is thicker than his thigh. I will press down hard on you. He beat you with whips. I'll beat you with scorpions. You are going to pay hard. And the people are like, we're out of here. We do not want any part of this. And they revolted under the leadership of a guy named Jeroboam. Now, how did Jeroboam fit in all this? Jeroboam was a smart, upcoming, gifted, young leader who had led the workforce for Solomon. He'd been his... He is captain of industry. And so he understood the ins and outs. He knew how all this stuff worked. But um, I'm going to read to you something from, from 1 Kings 11. And uh, when this happened, Jeroboam was... Uh, Solomon tried to kill him. And uh, and he ran off to, to Egypt to get away from him. So there was a prophet by the name of Ahijah. And he had delivered a word from God to Jeroboam. Solomon was still the king at the time. And this is what the prophet had said... To Jeroboam, he says, I will place you on the throne of Israel and you will rule over all that your heart desires. If you listen to what I tell you and follow my ways and do whatever I consider to be right. And if you obey my decrees and commands, as my servant David did, then I will always be with you. I will establish an enduring dynasty for you as I did for David. And I will give Israel to you. God's promise to Jeroboam. Well, that sounds pretty good. And so Jeroboam was subbed and bolded. The people want to revolt. He says, I'll take you. I'll lead you. And Jeroboam ends up taking the northern kingdom. And uh, Solomon, who'd been visiting a, a city kind of further north, turns tail, runs off to back to Jerusalem. They, they, uh, they, uh, the mob kills one of Solomon's guys. And, and this is the, this is the split of the kingdom. And so God was done with Solomon's kind of sinful rejection uh, of the ways of God and God loves people, and so when leaders lead people astray, God has to step in and remove uh, those leaders. And again, as I said, he got to keep the province of, of Judah. And um, so this is where we're at. We've got Solomon's done. Rehoboam has the southern kingdom. Jeroboam has the northern kingdom. Now, here's the thing about Jeroboam. He was a politician, and politicians are clever. And, and, and as a politician, he looked 
to people for his power rather than looking to God for his power. So he thought, okay, these people are going to make me powerful. So how do I keep these people under my control, right? And so um, he did not want to lose power. And so he created an, an alternate religion, he kind of copied the ways of God and created a false religion uh, so that the people could, could um, you know, worship in their in his way and by doing that he maintained control of the people um, let me read to you first kings chapter 12 verses 25 to 33 remember i shared with you last week there's lots of overlap between first and second kings and first and second chronicles and so um, this little bit i just want to give you some context first kings chapter 12 starting at verse 1. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, that's kind of in the middle there, kind of the heartland of Israel, where all Israel had gathered to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he returned from Egypt, for he had uh, fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him. I'm sorry, I meant to start at verse 25. Jump way ahead with me. Now we're at verse 25. Jeroboam then built up the city of Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and it, be, it became his capital. Later he went and built the town of Peniel. Now Jeroboam thought to himself, this is key here, unless I'm careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. When these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and make him their king instead. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And he placed these calf idols in Bethel, that's in the south, and in Dan, that's in the north, at either end of his kingdom. But this became a great sin for the people worshiped the idols traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and ordained priests from the common people, those who were not from the priestly tribe of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a religious festival in Bethel held on the 15th day of the 8th month in imitation of the annual festival of shelters in Judah. And there at Bethel, he himself offered sacrifices to the calves he'd made, and he appointed priests for the pagan shrines he'd made. So on the 15th day of the 8th month, the day that he himself had designated, not God, Jeroboam offered sacrifices on the altar at Bethel, and he instituted a religious festival for Israel, and he went up on the altar to burn incense. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures here, uh, two pictures of the same thing. This is in Dan, in the north of Israel. Where they haven't covered this entire, uh, sacred worship complex that, that, uh, Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam developed. That the aluminum structure is not from the time of Jeroboam. But it's a copy of what kind of the size and shape of what the altar would have looked like. Can we go to the next picture? Just kind of give you another perspective on that. And so this is around and all around there are uh, remnants of, of structures that he built for the idol worship of the golden calves. That's the setup. All that's the setup for where we're going today. We're actually going to now read Second Chronicles chapter 11. And I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we look in today's passage. I believe it's page 371 of the, um, the Red Church Bible. But Second Chronicles chapter 11. And we're going to start at verse 5. Rehoboam, southern king, right? Rehoboam returned 
remained in Jerusalem and fortified various towns for the defense of Judah. He built up Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soka, Adalim, Gath, Mereshah, Ziph, Edoram, uh, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Ajalon, and Hebron. These became the fortified towns of Judah and Benjamin. Rehoboam strengthened their defenses and stationed commanders in them, and he stored supplies of food, olive oil, and wine. He also put shields and spears in these towns as a further safety measure. So only Judah and Benjamin remained under his control. Verse 13, but all the priests and Levites living among the northern tribes of Israel sided with Rehoboam, the southern king. Verse 14, the Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and property and moved to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons would not allow them to serve the Lord as priests. Jeroboam appointed his own priests to serve at the pagan shrines where they worshipped the goat and calf idols he made. From the tribes of Israel, those who sincerely wanted to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem where they could offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. This strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, uh, they supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon. For during those years, they faithfully followed in the footsteps of David and Solomon. Let's be seated together. We thank the Lord for his word today. Thank you, Lord. Now, I'm sure to some people, maybe most people, Jeroboam's calves, golden calves and goats, made perfect sense. Right? It was a more relatable kind of religion. It was more similar to the people around it. It was more convenient. It was more exciting. It was more visible. You could, you could actually see what you were worshiping. He set up a priesthood. He copied the feasts. He, he set up the idols that you could go right to. You could touch them and see them and, and worship there. It was, it was probably not meant to be Baal worship. He, he probably meant, like, oh, that's kind of close. But the reality was, is that it was very similar to the Baal worship of the surrounding nations, and it eventually descended into full-on pagan worship. In fact, it turned even into fertility worship, which included ritual sex practices. And, and we know that later they even practiced child sacrifice, burning, sacrificing their own children to the, the god Molech. I, I, I want to say the devil does nothing new. Do you, do you know that in, in pagan uh, worship... Um, Illicit sex, destruction of children, born or unborn, is still part of the practice. It always goes there. That's how the devil loves to steal, kill, and destroy. But it's easy to see how it happened. You just think, wow, Jerusalem's several days away. This is all right here. I know it's not quite the same, but in my heart it's the same. You know, like you can see how you rationalize that, how you justify that. But there were some faithful people. Most of the Levites, it says, and now the Levites, remember, all the, there's multiple tribes, 12 tribes in Israel, and God had designated one of those tribes, the tribe of Levi, to be basically the, the equivalent to it would be like the pastors, deacons, elders, like the, the spiritual leaders for the nation, the priests, and so on. And uh, they said, along with some others, said, you know, we're not going to do this. We are not going to do this false worship. We are going to go to Jerusalem. We are going to move away because they understood this principle if you're taking notes in your outline today you can write this one down that in worship we accept no substitutes in worship we accept no substitutes you were all wired to worship you're wired to worship 
And we all worship something. And if we're made to worship God and worship God alone. But if, if we don't, we will worship something. And it goes like this. We're made by God for a purpose. Right? For the glory of God. And we fell away from God because of sin. Jesus came to save us. And now by our faith, our trust, our confidence in Jesus, we can be completely forgiven and rescued for all eternity. That's the gospel, the good news. It's the story that makes it possible for us to worship God. God created you to know Him. You're made for a relationship with God. Unfortunately, it's also in our nature to turn away from God, to turn away from a relationship with God. So one of the ways that we chase substitutes, for example, could be that we, we make knowing God into like lists, duties, religion, do's and don'ts. And, and we, we think, well, I just, you know, I'm just going to try harder and I'm going to be gooder and I'm going to be the right kind of person and I'll be good and moral and therefore that will make me right with God. And you know what that is? That's worshiping self. Because it's a religion of self-effort instead of confidence in Christ. We're worshiping, but we're worshiping ourselves instead of worshiping God. Or we replace faith in Jesus with faith in a person. Someone inspiring. Jeroboam's, you know, move was, like I said, largely political. He used religion to secure power over the nation. But clearly people trusted him enough to say, well, Jeroboam's setting it up. It must be okay. You know, and sometimes we place our confidence in a politician or a political party or a celebrity or our favorite preacher or a social justice issue. And we kind of get behind that and we say, that's what's, that's the, that's what's going to save us all. If we just do this, if we just follow this person, if we just have this belief, then, then we're all going to be saved. Where again, we're worshiping something other than God when we do that. It comes back to this. Am I pursuing a relationship with God by my faith in Jesus Christ or not? You see, Jesus was asked a question. They asked Jesus this. Jesus, what does God really want from us? Like, what does God want from us? Here's what, what Jesus says. It's recorded in John chapter 6, 29. I think it says this. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. That's it. That's what God's... You want to know... You, know, you want to work harder to please God? Believe Jesus harder. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what Jesus said. So we accept no substitutes. We want to worship God and God alone. And we, we want to know God through our faith in Jesus. But the Levites, the ones who moved from the north to the south, and the others who followed them teach us a valuable truth. That true worship has a price. True worship has a price. Uh, let's look one more time at, at, at that passage in... in um, Second Chronicles 11. Let's go to that next slide. It says this. All the priests and the Levites living among the northern tribes of Israel sided with Rehoboam. The Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and property and moved to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons would not allow them to serve the Lord as priests. Verse 16. From all the tribes of Israel, those who sincerely wanted to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem where they could offer sacrifices to the Lord the God of their ancestors. True worship has a price. Now, I wonder what you would do. What I, what would I do? If we could not, if there was no, like, church gathering in Fresno, what would we do? How far would you drive? Would you drive to Madeira? 
Merced? Mantica? Like, how far would you go to say, I gotta be with God's people? Right? Would you sell your home at a loss? Or abandon it, let someone else take it over? Would you give up the, the fields you just planted for next year's harvest? Would you walk away from all that, your livelihood? Would you leave all that to say, I gotta get where God's people are? What would we do? Would you leave the state? Would you leave the country? Some of you are itchy to leave California, I know. But not for these reasons, it's for the other reasons, the taxation and everything else, right? We hear stories of believers in other countries, they, they will walk for hours to get to a church service. Last week, uh, those of you who are here heard testimony from our brother Hakan, who lives in Central Asia, and he, he talked about being threatened at gunpoint for following Jesus. There's many, many more stories, true stories like that. Look, we struggle to get here if we're having a busy weekend. I'm told that the average regular church attender in America gets to church between two and three times per month, including all the midweek stuff. Well, look, please don't hear this as a guilt trip. It may well be our fault for not leading you in a way where you're encountering Jesus in a transforming experiential way. I get that. But still, I sometimes ask myself, is there anything at all that I say no to so I can say yes to God? So I can worship with God's people. Am I willing to pay a price for worship? In a few weeks, Becky and I are going to take in a conference. You're invited to join me. It's a free conference, one-day conference in San Jose called the Voice of the Martyrs Advance Conference. They bring speakers in who are from Syria and Iraq and other countries where they're being persecuted for their faith. And they share with us what's really going on, what's really happening. And, you know, it's inspiring and it's humbling. People who are paying a high price. Is there anything that we're willing to pay for the price of worship? You know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, so I'm 50, and some of you remember what used to be on at 6 p.m. on Sundays. Who remembers what was on at 6 p.m. Sundays? Disney. Wonderful world of Disney. I've got a picture. I didn't ask. Okay. Actually, I do remember that, too. Now, I showed you this in black and white because our family had a 13-inch black and white television with click, 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 right? Oh, man. I, I was. I was. We weren't really allowed to do much, but we did have a 13-inch television and we were allowed to watch the wonderful world of Disney at 6 o'clock every Sunday night. But what happened at 7 o'clock every Sunday night? Church. Church service. What time do you have to leave... The house. Do you know I never saw the last 15 minutes of the wonderful world of Disney? I'm not bitter. I might sound bitter. Right? As a kid, it seems so unfair. You know, I realize now that was part of, in a little tiny, teeny way, paying the price of worship to say, it's more important for us to be with God's people than to catch the last 15 minutes of Disney. I'm willing to pay a price. Yeah, but you think, well, why should worship cost anything? What are we talking about worship costing something? Right? Salvation is God's free gift. God's free gift of salvation. 
The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, you didn't get that gift on credit. You're not paying it back by going to church. Well, Jesus saved me and I'm going to go to church. Well, if I go 20 times this year and 20 times next year, then I'm pretty much done. You know, it's not like a mortgage, right? What are we paying for? Why does it matter? I'd say it matters because this. We invest in what we value. We invest in what we value. Some of you like cars and you drive a nice car. That's great. Some of you enjoy a beautiful yard and your yard's fantastic. Some of you, you know, whatever. You invest in what you value. The Levites and the others, more than anything, valued God. So they could leave. They could abandon their properties, their homes, their businesses, their jobs. They could abandon all that because they valued God more. And it's a, it's a foreshadow of the value that God placed in you. Do you know that? It's a foreshadowing of the value that God's placed in you. Because you know who else left everything for you? Jesus. Who abandoned the northern kingdom of the... He abandoned heaven. He left the glory of God's presence to come to earth and be with us. To be with us. He abandoned, left all that behind so he could be here. Laid his, his life down. Jesus paid the price for us to be able to worship him. When he went to the cross, was crucified. Forgave our sins. God proved Jesus to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, supreme over all, when God raised Jesus from the grave. Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our King. And in the same way that He left everything for our benefit, we're called also to pay the price of worship too. The early church did the same thing. As they, as they, as the early church formed, they met together in homes, they shared their meals, they sold homes and properties to help each other out. This is not a new thing. They were paying the price of worship. It's not really about skipping a game, you know, to get to a worship service or tithing faithfully, although that's part of it, I think. You may pay the price of, of worship by getting up 20 minutes earlier in the morning to, to do your R&R journal or do your devotional time. Or you may block off an evening each week to be part of a, a connection group. Or you might, you, you're here and you're serving in, in a one or various programs or different ways. Maybe we pay the price of our preferences. For example, in music. You know, sometimes when I prep for a message, I like to listen to old worship music. And by old, I mean early 2000s. All right? And I love that because, you know, that was a time when, you know, God was doing so much in our lives and it's exciting and like, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. And uh, this is my desire to honor you, right? Or, or Jesus, lover of my soul. Oh, just all these great old songs, right? Come, now is the time to worship. Oh, yes, it's so great. Meaningful, precious times with God, right? But I choose to set all that aside Things that I love for what God continues to do now in his church. God's still going at it now. And God's giving worship globally a a diverse experience of it. Did you know that this morning we sang a song that was written in San Diego? We sang a song that was written in Fresno. We sang a song that was written in Australia. We're going to close the service with a song by somebody from Elevation Church in North Carolina. God's at work all over the place creating new things. And we're singing a new song to the Lord just like King David said we should do. And I'm excited about that and we're going to pay the price. And sometimes we, we sing some songs of our heritage because those are meaningful and precious and God continues to speak through those too. But we're saying, God, we want to go where you're going. 
Bottom line, growing in your relationship with God has a price. We pay a price for that. A personal cost saying no to something here so we can yet say yes to God over here. Now, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Because it sounds really disruptive. It sounds disruptive to my comfort and yours. And it sounds disruptive to all things familiar and predictable. And my answer is yes, it's worth it. Because God is greater than any person, any program, any place, any person, place, or program. If you're writing that down in your notes, so you can write that one down. Let me take you to verse 17, though, because we've got this problem. Right, let's go to that next slide for a moment. It says, when Rehoboam was firmly established and strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel meaning Judah, southern Israel, followed him in this sin. What? We were just told that those people moved south. It strengthened the kingdom. It's just awesome. They've got the temple. They've got the priests. They've got the Levites. They've just got everything. And three years in, once he's got his grip on power, Rehoboam says, done with that. God is greater than he person, place, or program. We're, 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 we weren't told what the three years meant. We read there that it says for three years this happened. Was it, was it that after three years some moved back? Did the southern migration kind of take three years to happen? Or, or did they begin to abandon God after three years when things got comfortable? Chapter 12 goes on, verse 1 says, when, when Rehoboam was firmly established, he abandoned the law of the Lord. It's unbelievable. All these good, faithful, godly, sacrificial people gave up their homes, their lands, their businesses, their 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 family members, their their communities, their towns, their now they're gonna fall away from God. Yeah. Here's the caution you cannot allow a person a place or a program to be greater than what God is doing right now. Let me explain. For example, in a person, we, we say, and I, I've heard this here. Let me just, I'll just make it really personal. We, we hear, hear people said, oh, we had this pastor before. His name was Lewis Paul Lehman. He was amazing. I had somebody say, Brian, you're almost as good as Pastor Paul Lehman. Now, I know that was a high compliment, but it's a little funny, right? Or we say, man, when Pastor Bob Radke was here, those, then, then we really had it going on. Listen, if your hope is in any pastor, including me, to help you grow and flourish in your Christian faith, you're going to be disappointed. I am not Jesus. You can ask Becky about that, Right? I care about you. I love you. I want to help you grow. I'm going to do my best to, to lead you in ways that are, you can flourish, but you've got to feed yourself. You've got to know Jesus yourself. You've got to worship God. People come and go, but God remains and he's still at work. So, so don't allow a person to replace God. Don't let that become more important. Or we might, might think about it in terms of a place. 
You know, we, we might say, well, God really speaks to me when I'm at, at camp or I'm at a retreat. That's the time God speaks to me. Or, well, if only we had a, you know, a, you know, a prop, like a, a building of pews, then God would really work in this place. Then God would really speak to us. Look, around the world, friends, God's people meet in homes and warehouses and schools and under trees, wherever. Well, I understand we're in North Fresno. We're about to embark on a project here where we're going to improve, repair some of our failing things and improve our structure because we want to create an environment that's, that just helps you kind of engage in worship and feels good about inviting people. Look, I'm not against buildings and, and facilities and so on, but anytime we say a place is what it depends on, we're missing the point. This building we're in right now, this is an amazing building. Some of you were here when this place was put together. 32 years ago, you moved into this place. And it's, I'm really grateful for all the hard work that someone told me recently. They were here every, during that season. Every Saturday, it was like, we're going to church and helping build the building. I really want to thank you, those of you who did that. I am not, I, I, I'm not kidding. I am really, really grateful. But it is just a building. This is not the house of the Lord. God doesn't live in this house. This is a building that God has allowed us that we've dedicated to the worship of God and in welcoming and inviting and leading others to know and follow him. This is not the church. You are the church. And this building houses the church. So let's be careful that a place doesn't take the place of God or a program. You know, I used to direct choirs. I loved directing choirs. And the choir members loved it. I'm not sure that the audiences loved it that much. But it was great times. It was so cool. Some churches still use choirs. We used to use a choir here. In fact, the day may come when we have a choir again, if it helps us worship God effectively in a way that's, that makes sense in our community. Maybe you help in Awana. Crystal, you're here. Awana's amazing, isn't it? Over 100 kids coming. They're being discipled. They're learning the word. But you know... Awana is a program. There's nothing in the Bible about Awana. Even the Apostle Paul didn't have Awana, believe it or not. So it's great, but it's not more important than what God would. And maybe God would there would come a time when God would say, I've got, I've got a better way for you to accomplish those things you want to accomplish. Look, don't, I have no agenda in here. I'm not. Don't like, what's he really saying? I'm, just what I said is what I'm really saying, okay? That's all I mean. Because there's, there's a legitimate risk of elevating a people or a place or a program to a status that makes them more important than what we're trying to accomplish. So let's not do that. Let's allow God to keep giving us fresh insight, fresh ways of doing things, new inspiration, how we worship, how we disciple our kids, how we gather, how we, how we lead others to, to grow in the faith. Many of those Israelites who moved to the southern kingdom from the north thought it was all about King Rehoboam and thought it was about the priests or the temple or the festivals, people, place, program. And I, I believe they did the right thing. I think they were doing the right thing by moving south. But it might have been for the wrong reasons. And up north, you got Jeroboam, Jeroboam enforcing his reign Grasping his reign through the same stuff. Replacing people, place, and programs. It's very effective. 
But it was supposed to be, it was all supposed to be about a relationship with God by faith, just as it is today. Do you believe, do you believe that God is greater than a person or a place or a program? That the, the who, the, the where, the what is not nearly as important as the why. Why do we gather? To worship God. I invite the worship team to join me here on stage. We're going to sing one more song together. It's a song declaring that only God is king. And he is king forever. I love this song right now. It's one of my favorite songs right now. So I'm glad you're doing this one, Christy. But as we sing, I'm, I'm going to invite you to bring your heart to God. To examine your heart. To have a look inside and, and, and just say, is my heart fully and completely the Lord's? Does it belong to Him? Is there any place where I've substituted something, where I've substituted faithfulness to the Lord, where I've substituted faithfulness and worship with, with something else, be, be pursuing a program or, a, or, or an idea or a thought or a, or a belief or a doctrine or a person or a celebrity of some kind? Is there a place where I've stopped paying the price of worship where it's like, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. Is is there any place in my heart where I've allowed people or a place or a program to take the place of King Jesus in my life? And as we sing this, I just invite you to say, where's my heart? Allow the Lord to speak to you and then just bring it all to him. Just say, God, I want to worship you as the one and only forever and always. Let's stand together as we sing.